Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or excorde.org. I want to thank priests today. I want to thank priests in general and talk a little bit about the priesthood. And I'll end up by thanking all priests with the words I first published at the National Catholic Register. And I'm going to share some stories of priests from my personal life. But when I talk about the priesthood, I really kind of have one priest in mind. Maybe everybody has one priest in mind when they talk about the priesthood. I have stories of priests who displace themselves, priests who are tireless servants, priests who fight the devil directly or indirectly by fighting sin, priests who live with their flock, priests who sacrifice their bodies for their flock. And that all reminds me of the one priest I have in mind when I think of the priesthood, and that's Father C.M. Buckley, who displaced himself to live with his flock, which meant living in a men's college dorm at the University of San Francisco in the early 1990s. He was tireless even though for him that meant saying Mass late at night when his flock would actually show up and having his bedtime interrupted by uh, college students he had to counsel and kind of being available 24-7 to deal with problems, some of them quite severe. Uh, He had a very solid spirituality, but he wasn't into spiritual devotions. He wasn't into holy rollerism. He was just a good, solid, old-school I want to help you, priest. I remember my senior year, Father Buckley put me in charge of signing up men for all-night adoration, and he wanted to put a woman in charge of signing up female students for all-night adoration. So he said, Tom, who should I choose from the women to sign up other women for all-night adoration? I said, I don't know. Who would be good? Who would be responsible? Who would get the job done? He said, no, Tom, who should I schedule who will be up all night with you once a month at adoration and meet with you often about signing up women for all night adoration. I said, oh, April Beingessner. So he did. He signed up my future wife, April. And in fact, the first date that I had with my future wife, April, was with Father Buckley to talk about all night adoration. And it was actually in a a restaurant downtown. So it was like a legitimate date. So Father Buckley set me up for life. Uh, and I'm internally grateful, not just for that, but for all that he did for myself and fellow students. And he's older now. He was older than I am now when I knew him, I think. And now he must be in his 90s. But I've gotten calls from him two weekends in a row now uh, just to check up and see how I'm doing. So this is this is what the priesthood means for me, Father C.M. Buckley and... Um, that's, I think, one of the first characteristics of a priest is kind of this man of action, a fatherly man of action. So I wanted to spend a podcast sharing how I learned about the priesthood, not just from him, but how I saw aspects of the priesthood, which I sum up in Father Buckley, but I saw aspects of the priesthood in other priests. And the first dimension of the priesthood I want to talk about is the fatherly man of action. And the epitome of this for me is a priest I knew when I was in Washington, D.C., but he actually, this story is from when he was visiting my wife and family and myself in Connecticut. 
We were chatting in the front room of my house, which was on a fairly busy street, when all of a sudden we heard bang. A car hit, a, I guess, an electrical pole because simultaneously with the bang was the lights going out in the house and then shattering glass. And I rushed over to the window to see what was going on. And in the time it took me to get to the window, Father Richard Gill had grabbed his mask kit, his priest kit, I'm not sure what it was, and his jacket and was running out the door. He hadn't run to the site to save their bodies. He ran to save their souls. He asked if any of them were Catholic and was ready to administer whatever sacraments they needed if anyone was dying. And it was absolutely inspiring to me to see a priest rush out of my house with souls in mind like that. I think the world longs to see priests like this. Another attribute of priests is sort of the tireless service. And I mentioned that I saw tireless service in this uh, priest who stayed in our dorm. But I'll never forget, I don't even know how it happened, but my brother and I were volunteering, helping a priest in the Mexican border town of Tijuana, uh, which has ballooned into a giant city at the time without amenities, with people living in shacks on hillside. Our job was to sort of help this priest get through a typical week. The priest was a late vocation. In fact, I had seen pictures of him with his children. Uh, he had been a pro-life activist at the college that I went to. And um, once he entered the priesthood, he was sent out to the hinterlands in order to be at a sort of an outskirt parish. But instead of bemoaning his outcast state, he began organizing catechetical groups and charitable outreach for this Mexican flock that he had. But we witnessed him working from early in the morning every day to late at night each night as he visited with parishioners, as he woke up early to do his prayers. And uh, we saw how his parish would explode every Sunday into this, um, you know, tiny city of its own with music and vending booths and food. And um, there was not yet a plan for sacramental preparation in Tijuana, Mexico. So uh, you'd see people approach him at on Sundays usually, and if they were dressed like a bride and groom, he'd grab his uh, the stuff he needed to bless a marriage. If it was a young person dressed in a suit, he'd get his stuff for confirmation. If it was a uh, small boy in a white suit, he'd get ready to hear the child's confession and give First Communion. Um, so you really got to see his deep appreciation, his deep devotion to his flock uh, as he tirelessly served these people. Another aspect of the priesthood that I've seen in my life is how priests fight the devil. Priests fight the devil directly as well as indirectly, but they definitely do so directly. I'll never forget the experience I had when I was doing a story on exorcisms for a magazine. I spoke with several exorcists and heard these hair-raising stories of victims of possession who climbed pillars in churches. And a uh, priest talked to me about how he brought the Eucharist into a uh, the presence of a possessed person, and it, the person without knowing the Eucharist was there, uh, was driven crazy by the presence of Christ in his midst. You hear all these crazy stories about people with superhuman strength and who, people who contort in impossible ways. But 
in the piece, I mentioned that none of that is how people usually encounter the devil in their lives. Uh, Usually you find the devil insinuating himself into someone's life through suggestion and trickery, through tempting them to sin outright or tempting them to despair or uh, feel disgust or even harm themselves. My wife worked in deliverance ministry with an exorcist and saw some of these cases close up. In one case, a victim was tormented by visions of his own suicide, and even though he never attempted to kill himself, uh, he would hear these frequent accusations of worthlessness, and he would find himself muttering about them. He sought help with a counselor, and then through the intercession of three different dioceses, he was brought to this deliverance prayer. He wasn't possessed in some sort of horror movie way, but basically underwent deliverance prayers and what looked a lot like a um, exorcism, to hear my wife describe it. And after all of these various procedures were filled in the guy's life, the problem went away. The visions went away, the voices went away, and the person kind of went on his merry way. So this is a real help that priests do in delivering people from the devil. And as a matter of fact, there's um, forgiveness prayers that we've included in Ex Corde's prayer resources that came from this experience. This guy was given these prayers to pray basically for 30 days before the procedure because the devil likes to find ends of unforgiveness in your soul. And I've found that these prayers are extremely freeing for anybody to pray. But of course, the typical way that you fight the devil, well, let me put it this way, the typical way the devil triumphs over a soul is by tempting them to sin. And the typical way a priest fights the devil is by sitting in a confessional and being willing to reconcile people with God. And thank God for the priests who do that. But apart from action heroes or demon hunters, you have priests who call you home. Uh, priests who call you home. This is uh, a priest who I'll be, I can't even remember his name, but I'll be eternally grateful for. My mom, who died of ALS, was growing weaker and weaker in November of 2006. And uh, we went out there for Thanksgiving and to get cheaper tickets, stayed the weekend. And so that Sunday, the only mass that could be held in this small Arizona town where my mom lived was in the fire station. So the priest was kind of, you know, vesting in where the fire trucks were, and he was going to come out and say this mass in this fire station. And I went out and asked him um, if he could give my mother last uh, rites, anointing of the sick. So my mom had been seeing priests throughout. She'd got anointing of the sick before. She was confessing on a whiteboard when she could use her whiteboard. Then she was confessing with this little machine when she could use that. She was given communion in her home when she could swallow, then when she couldn't swallow it, the communion was even added to her feeding tube on occasion. And now she was pretty clearly near the end. Uh, And I told the priest, it'd be great if you could come by this week sometime, the sooner the better, and give anointing of the sick for my mom. And he said, well, why don't we do it right now? So literally, before he went into mass, he went to my mom's wheelchair and gave her anointing of the sick, right there and then before Mass, and then uh, walked up and said the Mass. Uh, And the very next day, my mother died. And it was such a huge comfort to have had 
that priest reach out to my mom and call her home uh, right before uh, she passed away. Then there's the sacrificial priest. There's uh, priests who give everything, who suffer themselves in their bodies and, and still keep giving. I'll never forget this remarkable priest who was at uh, St. Mary's Parish in New Haven, Connecticut. He was a Dominican. We didn't have air conditioning in the parish then. I think they've added it now. But um, he had diabetes and some kind of degenerative nerve disease. So his hands are always kind of shook. And he was hilarious. He would joke, it's hot enough for you in here with no air conditioning, but I'm up here wearing a horse blanket, he would say. His homilies were awesome. Uh, he was a really great priest. I, I, I think I, one of my kids, he was the first confessor for one of my children. At any rate, one day during Mass, he was a little off, and you could tell, wait, what's wrong with Father? And then during the first part of the Eucharistic prayer, he was slowing down in a way that must be associated with a neurological disease until he could hardly speak. And he had already found himself starting the consecration. And I guess once you start the consecration, you finish the consecration. I don't know if there's a canonical reason for that, but for him, he certainly was not going to stop saying the consecration prayer. But it was all he could do to gasp for breath. It was the most remarkable thing I've ever seen. And he said, take this. And there was a long pause. All of you pause, and eat it. And he took these long gasping breaths, and he looked like he wasn't going to recover. There was a parishioner who ran to his side, and I think somebody thought to bring him a chair so he could at least sit a little bit while he was struggling through this. He said, this is my body, and went through the whole thing. And uh, as soon as he finished the consecration, there was an ambulance that had been called that I hadn't even noticed, but these guys came running in with a stretcher. The, um, one of the uh, Dominicans at the parish held them back until the consecration prayer was done. They came up and right there dropped him down on this stretcher and rushed him off to the hospital. It was a really remarkable, overwhelming experience for myself and for my children uh, as this weak man with shaking hands who could barely breathe kind of struggled to elevate the host, and then the challenge, the chalice. <clears throat> and talk about an altar Christus, which is what a priest is, another Christ. This was like watching our Lord consecrating the Eucharist from the cross. And one of the kids in the car afterwards asked my wife, Mom, why didn't he just stop? And she said, because he's a priest. That's what priests do. Nothing could make him stop. It was a really powerful moment for my uh, children to see. The priest who sacrifices his own body for his flock is something we can all relate to. On Good Shepherd Sunday, we remember that the Good Shepherd is the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And they say in the great pandemics of the past, priests and religious sisters have always suffered more than lay people uh, because priests will go and serve their flock despite the danger. And uh, you saw that early on in the pandemic when the number of priests died over in, in Europe. When priests suffer at a higher rate than their flock, faith grows strong. When they suffer at a lower rate than their flock, faith dies away. 
obviously recently there's an example of this in the popular movie Father Stew, which is about a priest who has a degenerative disease and still keeps giving himself to his priesthood uh, toward the end of it. The movie has plenty of problems, but it was really uh, like uh, took the wind out of uh, both my wife and I watching this happen, especially thinking about Father Reed, who was the priest at uh, St. Mary's, thinking about uh, my mom's ALS, thinking about my wife's recent stroke. The priest who sacrifices his body for his flock is the ultimate image of a priest. It stands for so much. All, every priest does this to a degree if the priest is celibate, right? They're a sign of the new covenant where we don't live according to what this body uh, desires, but we live according to what God desires from this body. Ultimately, they stand for Jesus Christ, who is always the priest on the cross at Calvary. At uh, St. Benedict's Abbey here at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas, there's this beautiful image of the priest Christ on the cross uh, and a giant fresco that uh, is behind where the, the monk choirs are because that's what a priest is. So the priesthood was prefigured in the Old Covenant uh, by the Levites and Melchizedek, who came out of nowhere to offer bread and wine. These are men who've always been there to reconcile the people with God and to explain God to the people and to offer right praise on behalf of the people to God. Uh, The prefigurements kind of found their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who by the sacrifice of the cross is the one mediator between God and man the high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, according to St. Paul, the one priesthood of Christ is made present in the priests that we see around us. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas said, only Christ is the true priest, the others being only his ministers. Of course, there have been some spectacularly bad priests, as we're all aware, but the good that priests do, I think, is greater than the evil priests have done. Jesus himself points out what makes bad priests bad. He complained that the scribes and Pharisees tie up heavy burdens hard to carry and lay them on people's shoulders. Other priests who are bad draw attention to themselves. They widen their phylacteries and lengthen their tassels. All of their works are performed to be seen, says Jesus. They love places of honor at banquets, seats of honor in synagogues, greetings in marketplaces, and the salutation of rabbi. Uh, So I think the same thing which made priests bad in Jesus' day makes priests bad today. Priests who are all about themselves, all about the show, all about getting uh, honorifics told to them. And it's really uncanny how the ancient Christian writer St. John Chrysostom describes how this kind of priest plays to his audience instead of God. He says, quote, The priest is eager to please the audience. Whatever they want, he exhibits. If the audience is lacking in enthusiasm and lazy, he also becomes more unconcerned. If the audience delights in ridicule, he becomes one who moves others to ridicule. He is predictable. Without exception, he always does everything with only his audience in mind. End quote. These preachers would rather be admired than tell the truth. The worst among them takes that to the next level, using people to please his own sinful nature instead of using his priestly nature to address their sins. But I think, as I said, priests have done far, far more good than they have done evil. St. Paul gave a great description of what priests are like, what they were supposed to act like, and he uses a kind of a startling image 
to do so. He says, we were gentle among you as a nursing mother cares for her children. With such affection for you, we were determined to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very selves as well. So dearly beloved, had you become to us. That's what a priest is, ultimately. He's a father, yes, but the church is a mother, and he's the one who brings our mother of the church to his people. That's why priests have to be very close to Our Lady, because they're the ones who are the presence of Mother Church, of uh, the Father, of Jesus Christ in our lives. So in that spirit, we want to say thank you, priests. We want to thank not only the priests who have been our friends, but also those we barely knew, who did more for us than our friends ever could. We want to thank not only the priests who inspire us with their words, but also those who move us more deeply with their daily work of their priesthood than their words ever could. We want to thank those men who gave up their retirement and their well-deserved rest to enter the priesthood as late vocations, and also those who, as young men, saw their whole life ahead of them and decided to hand it all to Jesus Christ. We want to reassure you that the attacks on the priesthood will not prevail because Christ doesn't take your kind of generosity lightly. We know that there have been terrible, scandalous priests. This has been true from the beginning. From the original 12 apostles through the early Christian heresies, from the scandals before the Reformation to the scandals of the 20th century. But we also know that the priesthood is under attack unfairly, and priests know it also. Whenever someone looks at them suspiciously, whenever a mother hurries her children away from them, whenever they read an antagonistic article about how the life of a priest makes them prone to become monsters, they know it. Their noble, loving sacrifice is so often made to look ugly and twisted, the opposite of what it is. The whole group is too often defined by the exceptions in a way few of us ever have to deal with. But the priesthood will survive and grow stronger. In fact, it is already growing stronger. There are many more new priests than we have seen in a long time, and the new generation of priests is more committed to the church's mission than we have seen in a long time. We want to tell the faithful priests who unjustly suffer from these attacks that we're on your side, and more importantly, remind you that Jesus Christ is on your side. Jesus Christ, who said, Rejoice and be glad on that day, for your name is great in heaven when you are persecuted. Thank you, priests, for sacrificing the fulfillment of making it in the world in order to give us a chance to make it in the next world. You don't take on jobs. They are appointed to you. You put your own will at the disposal of the church, and we are grateful. Thank you for bringing our children into the church, sustaining their souls with the sacraments. Thank you for welcoming them into the church informally as well. We see them look up at you as celebrities, and we're glad the first celebrity they get to meet is a man of God. Thank you for patiently listening to them, for taking such joy in teasing them, and for showing them the true face of Christ, the gentle one that said, let the children come to me. Thank you, priests, for presiding at our marriages, even while you yourself live such that you are ready to serve your people at a moment's notice. Sometimes married people sigh and think envious thoughts about living alone but in the end, it's hard for us to imagine how you do it. Thank you for risking loneliness to serve us in our families. Thank you, priests, for putting yourselves in the unenviable position of dealing with us at our worst moments, when we're anxious, upset, depressed, even a little out of our minds, focused on our own problems to the exclusion of all else. When we see the care you take in listening to the problems of so many kinds of people, we can't imagine how you do it. 
How do you listen to angry people, whining people, weeping people, nervous people, suspicious people, and clueless people? How do you listen to us? Thank you, priests, for sitting in empty confessionals on Saturday afternoons. You wait there, not knowing if we'll come, like the prodigal son's father on the road. Thank you for all the times we hear, I absolve you from your sins, and feel a great burden lifted from our hearts. This gift of God's forgiveness brings the greatest joy back into our lives. We can give you nothing in return that even comes close to that. And thank you, priests, most of all, for bringing Christ himself into our lives. Where would we be without your astonishing ability to make the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ present on our altars and in our tabernacles? You are there for us every Sunday, every morning, giving us this infinite gift. Thank you. In the end, that's what's so great about you. Not you in yourself, but who you bring to us, Christ. People call from the hospital and say, I need a priest. They point to the confessional and ask, is there a priest in there? They approach you in the airport and ask, are you a Catholic priest? When people really need a priest, really any priest will do. Because a priest is nothing but a representative of Christ. Christ is the main actor in the consecration at Mass. It is Christ who forgives sins. It is in Christ that we are baptized. The story of my priestly vocation, wrote John Paul II, it is known above all to God. At its deepest level, every vocation to the priesthood is a great mystery. It is a gift which infinitely transcends the individual. Every priest experiences this clearly through the course of his life. Faced with the greatness of the gift, we sense our own inadequacy. End quote. That is true of all you priests. Your inadequacy is your secret weapon. You aren't acting on your own behalf or through your own powers. You are acting for Christ. And that's why, despite all the attacks, the priesthood will prevail, because Christ will prevail. We depend too much on you to ever let you go. Thank you. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.